Welcome. I'm Anna. And I'm Chanel Constance. And you're listening to Ebony Musings. This literary podcast was created to provide a safe place for Black women to discover wellness, balance, and self-care through literature. Join us in conversation as we dive deep into the importance of self-care, balancing our lives, and how literature has played a big part in our own personal healing processes. Let the journey begin. This episode, we want to warn you of a few trigger topics. We will be discussing rape, suicide, family trauma, self-harm, and mental illness. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I'm one of your hosts, Anna. And I'm Chanel Constance. On today's episode, we'll be discussing two books, Transcendent Kingdom by Yad Gassi and Bipolar Faith, A Black Woman's Journey with Depression and Faith by Dr. Monica Coleman. And in Transcendent Kingdom, Giffy is a fifth-year candidate in neuroscience at Stanford University School of Medicine studying reward-seeking behavior in mice and the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother, Nana, was a gifted high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after a knee injury left him hooked on Oxycontin. Her suicidal mother is living in her bed. Giffy is determined to discover the scientific basis she sees all around her. But even as she turns into hard science to unlock the mystery of, of her family's loss, she finds herself hungering for her childhood faith and grappling with the evangelical church in which she was raised, whose promise of salvation remains as tantalizing as it is elusive. Yagasi was born in Ghana and raised in Huntsville, Alabama. Her debut novel, Homegoing, was awarded the National Books Critics Circle John Leonard Award for First Best Book, and she received the Penn Hemingway Award for a first book of fiction, and she was also nominated for the National Books Award Foundation's Five Under 35 Honors for 2016. In Bipolar Faith, Dr. Monica A. Coleman's great-grandfather asked his two sons to lift him up and pull out the chair when he hanged himself, and that new state in the family shed for years. The rope was the violent instrument, but it was mental anguish that killed him. Now, in gripping fashion, Coleman examines the way that the legacies of slavery, war, sharecropping, poverty, and alcoholism mask a family history of mental illness. Those same forces accompanied her into the Black religious traditions and Christian ministry. All the while, she wrestled with her own bipolar disorder. Um, Dr. Monica Coleman is a professor of Africana Studies at the University of Delaware. She spent over 10 years in graduate theological education at the Claremont School of Theology, the Center for Process Studies, and Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Coleman has earned degrees from Harvard University, Vanderbilt University, and Claremont Graduate University. She has received funding from leading foundations in the United States, including the Ford Foundation, the Andrew Mellon Foundation, and the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation, among others. She answered the call to ministry at 19 years of age, and she's an ordained minister in the African Episcopal Church and an initiate and traditional Yoruba religion. You got some heavy books here. What are some of the significant family relations that Coleman highlighted that helped 
developed her faith. So she had some family connections, like um, her grandmother on her mother's side, um, her own mother, um, and she had cousins that she um, also talked to. So she had a pretty strong, um, I guess, family connection, even though there's a lot of mental illness going around. She, they, she still had a pretty good network of family available to her. Yeah, I felt the same way, especially while she was young. I didn't see a whole lot of outside um, relationships that were significant to her. That, But that didn't happen until like later. But like when she was younger, it was definitely um, her grandmother. And her cousin. Her, and her cousin, yeah. When Monica stated that she wore different masks, how many did she have and what did she mean by that? So... um when you're a, I guess, a, she's a high-functioning bipolar disorder um, like person. So, so basically, you know, she's a 4.0 student. She was athletic. So those are the types of masks that she, she has on. Like, she's um, athletic. She's smart. She's pretty, you know, go with the flow. But then mm-hmm. on the inside, she's anxious. She's scared. Um, she's confused. Um, she even thinks about suicide a few times. So it's just, it could be really, really overwhelming. She has a lot of stress and just a lot of um, thoughts that she's just trying to get through. And she doesn't, it's confusion. But she kind of masked that pretty well for the first few years until she kind of gets to her breaking point when some trauma kind of brings it up. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have different masks that we wear. So, like, on the outside, we might look happy and go lucky and we look like we got it all together. But on the inside, we're we're broken. We're, you know what I mean? But on the inside, it's just dying. Right. What were some signs of depression Coleman experienced? So, um, like, she was, like, very high-functioning depression. So, she's able to, like, you know, make 4.0. Um, do her regular, you know, day-to-day things. But in reality, she couldn't sleep for long periods of time. Um, she was very anxious. Um, she was always very much in despair. Um, sometimes, you know, she would just be tired. She didn't know why. Um, eating, cause, you know, like eating can kind of be like a, a chore, mm-hmm. you know. Um, she was really trying to find peace and balance but it's just she had so many things going on internally um and you know especially when you have traumatic things kind of happen to you the when the depression is hidden it just kind of comes out mm-hmm. what are the signs of depression i mean some people just mask it really really good like i know when i was depressed nobody knew i was depressed Right. But when I reached my breaking point, wait, I mean, I literally would go days without eating and I had, I was losing sleep. So, yeah, I mean, what are the signs? Well, um, when I looked, I did some research and I looked on the Harvard Medical School's website and it had a really good article about depression and how it's mm-hmm. caused. And it says here that it's often said that depression results from a chemical imbalance 
but that figure of speech doesn't capture how complex the disease is. Mm. And it says that research suggests that depression doesn't just spring from simply having too much or too little of a certain brain chemicals. Rather, there are many possible causes of depression, including faulty mood regulation by the brain, genetic vulnerability, stressful mm-hmm. life events, medications, and medical problems. And it's believed that several of these forces interact to bring on depression. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's a lot of things that can cause it. Like in her family, like she already had uh, stress and depression already encoded in her DNA. Right. So on, on top of that, um, her mother's volatile relationship with her dad, um, a lot of that um, can bring that out. Um, mm-hmm. My aunt um, was a manic depressive bipolar um, from when she was young. And then, um, I don't know, I feel that my mom, she was able to mask all of her traumas, but... Mm-hmm she just didn't know or she didn't want to get help but I knew she was kind of suffering from just different uh, behaviors that she was showing I know for me um, I kind of was always very self-conscious anxious I've always wanted to be you know accepted um, for the most part Uh, it didn't and there are some traumatic things that kind of happened to me Mm -hmm. but um everything was just kind of, I was just, I guess I was just living life, but there's a certain things, like I had difficulty in college, you know, just trying to figure out who I was, it was just really hard, but then when my mother died, it was like all of my issues kind of just came up to the surface, and I was, I was very, very irritable, I was sad, a lot of suicidal adulation, I didn't want to work, I didn't want to do anything, I was just laying in bed, watching TV, I overate or I didn't eat. Um, and then when I finally went back to work, I couldn't focus. Um, I, I, I heaped a lot of anxiousness and anxiety on my head. So mm-hmm. I, it's like I had a headache all the time. So by the time I went to another job, you know, I would do well, you know, I would mess up. So she was like, you need to get it. You need to find a treatment plan that can help you. Because if not, you're going to end up losing your job. So that's when I decided to take antidepressants. And that did help me. Mm -hmm. It kind of took me a while to kind of figure out what was the best antidepressant for me to use. But I had to take that first step and realize that, hey, I needed help because it's really affecting my life in a a bad way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's really an ongoing process. You have to keep on top of your medication and on top of therapy. You just have to have really good coping mechanisms to help you get through hard times or just to make yourself feel happy so I'm Haitian American and um just mental illness or mental health is not really talked about um I want to say within the last year my parents have been open to me about how they feel mentally and what they've gone through but growing up that was never something that we even just touch base on you know what I mean that's nothing with anybody ever engaged when you were sad or whatever it is mentally you're going through it was a you'll be all right just sleep it off kind of thing or you know just go to church and pray and you'll be fine it was just one of those there's really nothing wrong with you situations where the actuality was more than that so 
I can say it was one of those things for me, how I've experienced it, where it's just, I don't want to say it was something that was shunned upon. It was just something we never talked about. Right. So it wasn't until, like I said, a year ago that, you know, different family members start opening up about how they've been feeling, you know, depression and all this other stuff. So it's like, I I don't want to say it's a cultural thing, but it could be. It's just one of those things we just never talked about. It it is. It really is a cultural thing, especially in the African American community. It it definitely Mm -hmm. is. You know, I'm the Mm -hmm. research person. Mm -hmm. So it says that a lot of research studies on depression in African American women have existed for decades. And this paucity, or the, it's like it's like a lack of it, it mm-hmm. contributes to the problems of mixed diagnosis, underdiagnosis, and undertreatment for depression for this population. Mm. So when you have um, stressful life events like we were talking about in childhood mm-hmm. or current, like your mother dying or some 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 type of assault or neglect, anything like that, that increases the risk for developing depression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with being, if you're an African-American woman, it's, when you're a woman, it's hard, but when you're an African-American woman, it's even more hard because, you know, you're trying to balance work and home demands and your personal relationships. If you're married with your husband, your children, trying to figure out who you are, like trying to nurture your identity development and trying to create a purpose in life Mm -hmm. and to have to kind of help you motivate you to, you know, live a better life. But Mm -hmm. that's kind of hard when you're, you know, you don't have enough support, when you're underpaid, when everybody dumps all of their emotional labor on you, and you don't have a chance to breathe. That can, that can cause depression. You just really, I think Black women really need a safe place where they can go and process all of those feelings so they can be a better woman for the world and for their families. But if there's not enough research, if there's not enough resources to kind of pull the the woman into a safe place, then it's, it's going to be hard. Right. Right. How did Coleman's faith change when she attended Harvard? So this one. So mm-hmm. I can relate to this question. So she, I think she kind of had an inkling of what, um, what church was about, but she didn't really mm-hmm. have a relationship with God until she got to Harvard. And she really got, when she met someone that really taught her to have, to have a really close and a close relationship with God for herself and to search the scriptures herself. And yeah, then, I thought she had a good um, support team right. when it came to that. Cause like before it was just her cousin and her grandmother on her mom's side. Right. Right. So those are people that support her, but then she goes to off to college and it's just like this whole group of people who really embraced her and helped her. And I think that was the key to getting her where she needed to be. Right. So she had a, a network of people and resources. So they taught mm-hmm. her how to study the Bible in an efficient way, how to navigate um, just different things in the Bible, how to lead out Bible studies to kind of strengthen her her outlook on different things and then she finally got her call to the ministry when she went to a um a church service at an mm-hmm. AME church and she was filled with the Holy Spirit and she finally was able to connect to God and God was able to show her that this is what you're supposed to do you're supposed to be in ministry so I really right. like that because I was raised I identify as a Christian 
And um, I was raised um, in a church that to me emphasized more tradition, more than relationship with God. Um, Mm -hmm. It was not until I got much older, like in college and even after grad school, when I finally started, when things started finally happening to me, I finally was able to connect to God on a more personal level and um, finally have a relationship on my own. Mm-hmm. And then once I had that, that kind of drove me to the Bible and started reading things for myself and trying to understand the difficult things and the context that it was written. Once I did that, I was able to apply it to my life and it really enriched it. Um, mm. I think there's a lot of things that that's happened in the ch- in many churches, but in my church in particular, that has been really disappointing. Um, and sometimes I just want to leave. I just want to leave altogether. But mm-hmm. the thing is, you really. I think for me, honestly, um, I've been a part of this church since I was a baby, and mm-hmm. um, they're kind of like part of my support, mm-hmm. like the people of the church, not the actual like you know organization. Right. So right. it's kind of hard for me to leave. And I don't think right now the Lord wants me to leave because even though I've said, yeah, I'm going to leave and blah, 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 you know, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. I think the main thing for me is just to have a good relationship with God and seek the answers for myself. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a part of a couple of great, um, great online organizations that um, where I'm able to ask questions and learn more about theology um, progressive Christianity that you know I really um, enjoy talking to people and just learning more about being a Christian. And I actually have a relationship with God, like I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took a lot to, for me to get to this point. Not mm-hmm. to be forced to have a relationship with God, but to really just have a natural inclination to go to God. So I think mm-hmm. that's really what it was. Like you just needed to have you need to have the resources and an open and safe space to connect to God. Right for me. Right. No, I agree with you. How did her self-image inform her relationship with God and her community? Um, trigger warning. She was she was raped, right? And mm-hmm. that kind of changed the way that she saw herself. Right. Um, and the thing is, she was able to. She didn't. It was. It, it was a really like disorienting space that she was in. She didn't didn't know who she was. She was scared. Mm -hmm. Um, She thought it was something that she had done. And she really had to do this time of mourning. So she read books. um, She sought counsel. She went to church. And slowly, but and she went to different dance classes. And slowly but surely, she began to kind of I guess, see herself as a human being rather than a victim. You know, she began to understand herself more. She began to um, get stronger in spite of what happened to her. And as a result of that, she was able to um, do the Dino Project, which is basically a ministry for women who have been, you know, sexually assaulted, abused, neglected. And it it became a great... um, is a, a great anchor in her life. So I think after even I, I think even she even though she struggled before, you know, her assault, 
I think she finally kind of came into herself after it happened. I, I'm, I'm sad that it happened that way, but um, I think after the assault, most definitely, and God was able to guide her to people that could help her and mm-hmm. also to the resources that she needed, that she was able to finally see herself as a, as a human being that had a lot to offer the world and, and, and her ministry. To answer that question, just a part of it, um, just like the people that she told and those people are the ones that helped her realize that, you know, she's still human. And um, I just, I felt like that was the big part that helped her to continue to realize, you know, her self-worth. Yeah. Well, you're depressed. Um, you don't want to be around people. So with her, she's at Howard. I'm sorry, Howard. She's at Harvard, excuse me. And um, she says that she moved to a new apartment and, you know, it was kind of far away from the main campus. So um, it was kind of like she, she, she just went to classes. She disappeared. She didn't really, you know, bother people too much. You know, she did what she had to do. But when you're depressed, it's really great to be around community because when you're mm-hmm. isolated, your thoughts kind of become become work and towards self. And that's not a really good way to think because your mind can play tricks on you. Um, you can, you can feel more hopeless because there's no, there's nobody there to kind of help you or, or to kind of guide you. So it could, it could mm-hmm. be really precarious. Mm-hmm. Um, her dad was an alcoholic, right? Yes. So just that situation with her parents and then even before then the grand, what was it? Her great grandfather or whatever yeah. that like hung himself. And right. they, I mean, these people are holding on to a noose. Like yeah. it's, I, I just felt like so much trauma from way before she was even born, just built up to the time she was here dealing with her alcoholic abusive father. The mom can't seem to get out of the relationship. Just telling her mom, she's going through this stuff. And her mom is kind of throwing it to the side because she's still, you know, dealing with the dad. And it's just like, her, it, I don't think that situation was intentional, but she she became invisible at that point. Right. What were your thoughts on the response of those that found out about Coleman's rape? So this one was a doozy because, um, so she, she told her parents and they're like, you know, why did you? It was more of like a blaming thing. You know, why did you let this happen? Uh, how is this going to look in front of everybody? And then when she went to the to the police to file a report, they really wasn't helpful as well. And right. that's why rape culture is really, really bad. Because um, it really doesn't give a voice to the victim. It puts it puts all the blame, oh, the blame on the victim right. instead of putting the blame on the perpetrator that did the harm to the victim. Right. And nobody deserves to be to be raped, no matter what they look like or what they're wearing or how they act. That is an act yeah. of violence that should never happen. Yeah, I mean we've seen it on TV shows all the time. You know what I mean? Where it's like, or. Um, you'll see it on the news where she was wearing a short dress. That doesn't mean anything. Right. She didn't ask for that. She has every right to like love her body the way she chooses to. And the fact that 
some guy decided, well, you asked for it because you wore that short dress, thought he was just going to take it. That's mm-mm. that's just, you know, toxic masculinity, rape culture, which is all mixed up in patriarchy. And it's just it's just really, really bad. And we really need yeah. to have more of these conversations to break the bonds of toxic masculinity and stop trying to dominate right. and have power over people. I agree. But I did absolutely. I did not like that because even the police could have really helped her. Like they were making her feel guilty. They didn't really make her feel comfortable. They had no right. empathy or compassion. They were very cold. Right. So I'm just like, yep. and that's why a lot of women don't want to go to the police because it's like, well, what's the point? Right, right. They're gonna think I asked for it anyway. So you would, you know, I bet you. I, I don't know the statistics. I don't know the numbers, but I'm sure there are more rape victims out there that don't report it just for this reason nobody will believe me they said they'll say that i asked for it exactly which is sad and yeah i love any type of work that tries to break the stigmas of rape culture and toxic masculinity that anything that anything that's dealing with patriarchy that's negative you're breaking it down i'm all for it yeah Yep, absolutely. Um, how did Coleman's community and friends help her without invading her privacy? I think they just, for for a lot of them, they asked, I think basically when she called, that's when they came. Yeah. Um, I, there was one instant in the book where um, she called one of her friends and she was talking about, you know, she was struggling with her suicidal adulation and her friend came and removed all of the knives from the house. Yep. Yep. And she was, and he was like, you know, I'm not giving you these knives until you're much better. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, in regards to her other friends, they kind of just, they kept on leading her and guiding her to the right people mm-hmm. by, while being supportive of her and trying to get her to, a better place mentally you know they, they led her yeah. to a good psychiatrist good um she was able to get a job you know mm-hmm. at one point because um her advisor you know kind of uh, linked her up with someone from a store um so she was able to to with i would say in this book the one thing i really like is that the community came together to help her with yeah which is really really important and the thing is, I know sometimes you want to help people when they're going through stuff, but they have to actually want the help and ask for it first. You can't force them to do it. Right. Otherwise, I, it'll I like backfire. The, yeah, I like the fact that they gave her the tools without, you know, what the question says, invading her space. They allowed her to tell her story. They allowed her to express her feelings. Um, you know, the situation where, you know, the friend went and took the knives, like, Instead of, well, what happened? And, and, and just going back and forth with her, he knew what he needed to do. Yes. I'm going to take the knives away. And when I see and I know that you're good, I'll give them back to you. So I, I think they did an, an excellent job with that for her. And I feel like more people should do that for their friends when they go through that situation. You know, stop. Don't be asking a million questions. Don't, don't make them relive that situation. Allow them to tell you naturally when they want to talk about it, but be there for them and provide them with the tools to help them get through it. You know what I mean? Right. So I gave this book a five. This is actually a reread because 
um, I think my mom died. And then I think a couple of years afterwards, I found this book and I read it. And I was like, wow, I can really relate to her because I'm a church girl um, struggling through a lot of different things. My mom died. I, I didn't really know who to turn to. I didn't have really a framework or just a guide to kind of help me through my feelings. And here's this book that kind of explains everything. Mm-hmm. And I really saw myself in the book. Um, it really showed me that um, that there is hope even though mm-hmm. you struggle um, when you have a community of, of people, your family, your friends to kind of pull you pull you in and, and protect you and kind of guide you that you will be okay. But you literally mm-hmm. have to take one day at a time and you always have to seek help. You always have to make sure that you're putting one foot in front of the other and giving yourself a lot of grace. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a Christian, but um, I too gave this book a five star because at the end of the day, regardless of faith, she's a human being that went through some stuff that all of us go through, regardless of our, our faith, right? Mm-hmm. So the tools that she got, the people that helped her, just her story, understanding the um, family trauma that lingered for decades, century, you know what I mean? Like, I felt like that's all of us. We wanted those books where regardless of your faith, it's a really good book to read yes. because it had some great resources and just her overall story is so helpful. You know what I mean? So, The next book that we'll be discussing is Transcended Kingdom. So this book was also really good too. How do Giffy and her mother use prayer differently throughout their lives and especially after Nana's death? What variation of prayer do the two women discover? Um, her, Giffy's mother is very devout, a very devout evangelical, evangelical Christian. So, mm-hmm. you know, prayer, she just she uses prayer for everything, you know, to thank God for waking her to get getting her up in the morning, to ask for help, um, whenever she needs it to, to guide her family, she's always praying because mm-hmm. to her, God is life. Now, Giffy, I think um, in the beginning, I think she's just emulating her mother, what her mother's right. doing and what other people are doing around her right. just because she wants to be accepted. But I think eventually she does come to a point where she is talking to God. The form of prayer she's using is like in a, um, in a journal. So she writes in a prayer journal, you know, to kind of get to, to have that relationship with God. She goes to church. You know, she talks to her young people. She talks to other young people. So she does cultivate some type of connection to God. But when her when her brother died, um, it was, she just completely stopped praying. Mm-hmm. I can see how prayer was different for her compared to her mom. She was just you know, following kind her of, kind of going through the motions, and yeah. she was kind of she was kind of dealing with God as a transactional God, right? Like right. if you if if I pray this, He's gonna give me this, right? Right. So how does Giff, Giffy, excuse me, approach the moral predicament of running her science experiments on mice? What elements of her faith and sense of God, a sense of connection to God's creations, are evident in how she treats the mice? Well think she's trying to figure out what's going on with her brother um, right. and why he 
succumb to, um, you know, being addicted to drugs. So she, mm-hmm. she really wanted to know why it happened and how she could fix it. Um, I think she was kind of tired of God or she just, she was like, God's not real. So science has to have, have the answer. So that's why right. she went really gung-ho into this into the lab. And she's like, I'm going to figure this out using science and hard facts. And, and you know, the answer's going to come. But it, it really doesn't happen that way because a, a lot of science is theory or, like, <laughs> sometimes right. it's an educated guess. <laughs> and especially right. with um, psychiatry and mental health, a lot of the big improvements really didn't happen until about 40, 50, even 30 years ago. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever watched Ratchet um, on Netflix, but um, it, it shows basically, I, I would say in the 1950s, how mental, how mental hospitals used, used to run. And it, it wasn't good at all. They used, to at do, all. they used to do lombotomies and mistreat mm-hmm. the patients. They didn't really know how to holistically treat them. So it was really, really an oppressive environment. Mm-hmm. I felt like um, in this situation, science became her god. Mm-hmm. She she was with science. She got results when right. you pray. When she was praying to God, she wasn't getting any results. Right. So so with science, it's just it became this is it. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to treat these mice to figure out why my brother's addicted to drugs. So I, I can see how she lost that disconnect with God and how science became like her primary go-to. Yeah, because like you said, she was trying to figure out what where he is, what does it right. look like. She really wanted to get an answer of, or get a feeling of who God was. Right. And she, just when you think that she was going to finally get it, her her brother died and he was she was just like, you know, God wasn't there at all. Right. So, but science was. But science was. So let me just go down mm-hmm. here and just really apply myself to the study of science and figure out a way that I can fix other people who's like my brother, or at least figure out why it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, consider the stigmas surrounding addiction, especially opioid addictions, the rate of which are exploding in today's society. What other stigmas and expectations was Nana responding to by not asking for help to deal with his addiction and others for, and others not doing more to help? So I think she was just really um, ashamed, but I also think that she didn't really understand. So when you're an immigrant, you know, you're, you're coming from a place that's home to a place that's kind of, that's really just different in all aspects. And, you know, you're in Alabama where there's a lot of rampant racism. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're in a new environment with weird racism happenings and thoughts and ideals. So, and you're trying to figure out yourself. So when you don't have the resources, you're going to get the thing, you're going to go to something that's going to, I guess, kind of alleviate the pain or just be there as a temporary salve on, on, I mean, on your problem until, you know, you're going to the next hit. And that's what happened with, um, with her brother. Um, and I just think that, uh, 
she really she really thought that he, that he was a junkie and he wasn't strong enough. The thing is that he really didn't have any kind of he didn't really have he didn't have the support that he needed because his father wasn't there, you know. Right. Um, and that's you really need your father. They both needed their fathers, but you know when you're a teenager having growing pains, you need that fatherly, you need that masculine and feminine energy and love so that you can grow. And he was missing part of that. So he struggled. And so did Giffy as well. Okay. So Nana was born in the U.S. and his parents are from Ghana. Correct. Correct. The people that he could talk to just weren't there. Like, his mom was always working. Yeah. So I, I don't... I can see how he just couldn't ask for help he just didn't have the support he needed the people that he needed right right and also the mother and the father didn't have the have the resources they were both underpaid and right. worked to death you know right and the father had to leave to go to Ghana because he just couldn't take it of course I wish he would have stayed um but that wasn't the case and I felt I really didn't like him in the first place because it's like he left everything on his wife Right, and she didn't have any help, no support except for the church. Right, and you know, like, like we, like we said before, you know, depression is caused by a lot of different things, especially stressful life events, uh, mm-hmm. being poor, being in poverty, not having support, um, always fighting, or just just having a really rough time. Yeah, so you could kind of see that. Um, the, her mother's depression was creeping in even when the um, the father was there. Right. So this is how I saw this. I saw it as like coming to the U.S. was the mom's dream, right? right. She's got kids. This was her dream. He, The dad just tagged along. Right. So she's here in the U.S. and she's busting her butt to like support her family because she wants that American dream. For him, he's willing to do it because that's his wife and he's got kids, right? Mm-hmm. But when he gets to the point where he's like, I can't take this no more. I'm not making any money. I'm not happy here. It was easy for him to get up and go because that wasn't his dream. Right, right. Okay, that's He point. didn't want to be there. Right. So he, he could just get up and go and he was okay with that. And he was willing to leave his kids and his wife behind to go back home to Ghana. And I thought that was messed up. Yeah. Why would you not take your family back with you? Or find a way to make it work. But she didn't want to go you, back, though. She wanted to stay in America. Yeah, she didn't want to go back. Right. So it's like, well, you do know United States is pretty big, right? Like, you have other states that have options. But I just felt like him being in the U.S. was not in his heart. So he didn't put in the effort and the work the mom did in order to stay and make it work. He chose to just go back to his country and go do him. And I just thought that was so messed up. It, it, it was messed up. But I think also... Um, I. I think they they always they they always want a, a connection to home. So even though Alabama was a messed up place, I believe that's the only place that they felt comfortable. And there was an actual you know Ghanaian like um, support system. Right, but it definitely wasn't enough for the dad to keep him there. Right. Um, Very true. What ways does Giffy take on the role of caretaker for those in her life? Who, if anyone, takes care of Giffy? This is a big question. So, basically, after her her brother died, 
she, you know, became her mother's caretaker. She was very young, like 10, 11, 12, something along those lines. Yeah. And so she was making sure her mother was fed, um, bathing her, making sure that the house was safe. Like she was doing all of these things just to make sure that everything was okay. But she, she really didn't have, nobody really took care of, of Gifty after that time. She was basically on her own. She was really right. smart already, really advanced. So she was able to kind of figure out things and how and the different resources she can use to help both her mom and herself. But mm-hmm. um, outside of, I think after a certain age, 11, 12, 13, she was just really taking care of herself. Right. She, she was put in that role, although yeah. she didn't really want to, but she was pretty much stuck. It was just her and her mom at this point. So who else was going to do it, right? right? So there's both um room of mystery in both science and religion. So mm-hmm. you can you have to have a balance for you in both ways. Otherwise, you'll be a zealot, either a scientific zealot or a science zealot or or a, like a religious zealot. And it's really mm-hmm. really hard to be balanced because of all the stuff the media is putting out. Or if you're not raised in a in an environment where there's like a lot of open thinking or a lot of questioning, it's hard. So, and of course, you would never say certain things about spirituality or religion in an electoral presentation because this is a this is like a, a science a research facility. Like they consider religion okay. and God like a figment of an imag- imagination. It's not real. They want hard cold facts and data but a lot of times science could be like that as well because we don't really understand all the phenomena in the world or what's going on in our bodies so I think just in general you have to have a balanced viewpoint of both science and God in general yeah I felt like you know you don't mix church and science right so those who believe I pray and things happen and science is false and science is more, well, we, this is hard facts. You can see this, but you can't see that. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I get why she struggled with that because it's just church and science. You just don't mix. So how does Giffy feel when she overhears congregants gossiping about her family? How does this experience influence her relationship with the church, with her family, with God? I mean, of um, course, you're, you're going to feel mad because this, this, this church is supposed to be your outside family, outside of your original family they're supposed to care about you and love you and so instead of being treated like a family member you're being her brother was being basically being being treated like an object oh you're engaged you do this for us you do that so you know yeah we love you but when he has a hard time it's like oh well he's an addict and you know black people are predisposed to having that type of um to, to be uh, addicted to drugs and all that and you know that doesn't make any sense that's not what it says in the bible that's not what being a Christian is about and that's uh, and the thing is I would feel angry because you're supposed to be my family and, and, and emulating Christ and you're not doing that you're being harmful and violent with your words and your actions so if I can't if I don't feel safe here then I'm, how will I think that God is a safe place or that he even cares about me. Yeah, this is one of those situations where you can see people just walking away from the faith, right? 
it's not so much about what God has or hasn't done for me. It's more so the people that are supposed to represent God, right? They're supposed to be loving and caring, but they're only loving and caring when they, when it um, benefits them. The brother is good at sports. You know, these people are probably sports fanatics or whatever. Like, yeah, you know, we're all for it. But the moment it's something negative, it's like, it's, it's totally shunned upon. It's like, oh, oh, well, you know, they're those kind of people and they do this and they do that. And it's kind of like, how does that work? You're supposed to be walking in faith a certain way and you're supposed to take care of your brother and sister, right? right? But then when something negative happens, all of a sudden is, well, I don't know them. They're so quick to like throw people away. You know what I mean? So I can see how she was conflicted with the church and the people in it because of that situation where it's like, well, yesterday you guys were so nice to me. You love my brother. And today because he's on drugs it's like you look down right. upon me like i'm nothing yeah i think especially for 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 millennials they want to feel safe and they want a connection not mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. that is uh, a farce or anything that's fake they want a real connection i i know that's for me and with the real connection they want a real um i guess what's the word teach teaching of the bible and it's in a good context that they can apply to their lives you know not just any teaching that basically just condemns everybody and doesn't give any leeway for any gray areas or just just places of grace so um i think the church has a lot of work to do in regards to that Um, one last question what did you think of of giffy's um relationships especially be like her, her, her relationship with her boyfriends, like with Raymond and Han. What did you think about that? I don't know. She was really interested in being in a relationship at that time. Yeah, I just thought she was more about her science and figuring out her mom. And I just, oh, I, I just, I just felt like her heart wasn't there. I think she was just she was trying to get comfort and I think she wanted to love and it was hard for her and and she built up so many walls because she just got hurt and she just had to be like hard and analytical and driven and not have any soft spaces because she wanted Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. but she just she just didn't want to keep on getting hurt and I'm really glad that she ended up you know having a partnership with her with Han at the end I thought that was really nice and she eventually did go back to church to cultivate a real relationship on her own terms. So I yeah. really liked that. Yeah, she did that. I, I, I did like the book. I gave it five stars. Um, it was kind of a departure from home, home, home going, which is very yeah. lyrical and vast and just like a big epic story. Um, mm-hmm. But this was more clinical science to the point, but it still had a lot of emotion to it. And I really liked the way that she kind of um, talked about faith and science. Um, mm-hmm. So I could definitely, uh, uh, um, I can definitely connect with this. So I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, I gave it five stars too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm a big fan of her work and I don't know at one point as I was reading I know she's from Ghana right and she lives in Mississippi so I was like is this her story is is some of this something that she's gone through so I was that that made me a little bit curious about the the story overall but yeah I loved it I would totally recommend this book yes Welcome to the segment of the show we call Girl Talk. In this segment, we are taking a moment to prioritize our mental and emotional health by checking in with each other, discussing life, bookish news, and sharing some helpful self-care tips. Hey, Chanel, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm not too bad. So what do you have for us in bookish news today? So... Last week, we actually had two very good, prestigious um, book awards. So first, we had the National Book Award, Mm -hmm. and it was actually hosted by Jason Reynolds. Nice. It was really good. He looked very dapper. He's so cute. Mm -hmm. I have a a huge crush on him. Mm -hmm. He's really cute. Anyways, sorry. So um, they handed out all of the um, awards. Mm -hmm. So for fiction... The award went to Interior Chinatown, which was written by Charles Wu. And um, it looks really interesting. His book is not something I would normally read, but I may pick it up. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the the nonfiction award went to The Dead Are Arising. And this is a book based on Malcolm X's life. Um, it was written by Tamara Payne and her father Les Payne, nice. and it's yeah. gotten a lot of great reviews. Like a lot of the reviews I've been reading say it's the best, um, like biography or just book about Malcolm X that's been written in a really long time. Wow! Yeah, actually, uh, my book finally came in, so I'm hoping to get that one started. If not tonight, tomorrow. So I'm really excited about that one. And then the award for young people's literature went to Kaysen Calendar for Kings and the Dragonflies, which yeah. was a surprise. I was like, wow, they're really diversifying everything. Oh, yeah, I noticed that, too. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Um, so I really, well, except for the the fiction, I really wanted that to go to the li- the secret life of church ladies, but she, oh. didn't, she didn't want it. Yeah. But that's okay. At least she has the distinction of being a finalist. Yeah, absolutely. So for the Man Booker Award, Douglas Stewart, he won for Shuggy Bane. Mm-hmm. I've seen this book around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically about a gay song of a of an alcoholic mother in the 1980s Scotland. So I don't know. I'm not I normally wouldn't read it, but since since it won the you know the the Booker Award. I might mm-hmm. take a look at it. I um, actually um, was lucky enough to get my hands on a copy, the Ark, um, earlier in the year, and took me mm, like a week and a half to read it. But the book is actually really, really good. So it is okay. Yeah, I'm happy that he won. He totally deserved it. Like I talked about that book all year, but there wasn't a lot of um, publicity 
or promotion for that book, but obviously mm-hmm. because of COVID. But yeah, I'm I'm glad he got recognized because that book is really really good. All right, so I wanted my personal favorite was to win is was Maza Majinsky for mm-hmm. The Shadow King. I really wanted that to win. Mm-hmm. And then there's also Tiski. I'm not going to pronounce her last name because I just don't want to butcher it. But she's from, she's a, a Zimbabwe activist and her book called This Mournable Body mm-hmm. um, was also shortlisted. So I either wanted one of those two to win, but that's okay. You know, at least, again, they, at least it has the distinction of being a finalist. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I was just excited. I mean, I know I had two books that I really wanted to win was um, The Secret Lies of the Church Ladies and um, was it Undocumented, Undocumented Americans? So those two, I thought, uh, personal opinion, should have won, but I'm glad they got recognized. But I was also happy to see how diverse the finalists and the winners were so i thought that was yes i really like really that cool. for both awards they were very very diverse yes there we go so you know with everything that happened this summer mm-hmm. you know there's been a lot of reckoning and a lot of institution in, institutionalized racism mm-hmm. in a lot of places so especially in literature in the publishing world there was a lot of reckoning so they decided to um actually kind of shake things up and make some black women the publishers of some really like big publishing houses so we have Dana Kennedy um, who was a former journalist at the New York Times and she was also one of the administrators for the Pulitzer Prize she is actually running Simon and Schuster as the as the publisher and she'll be the first black woman to run to be a publisher for that company um, Lisa Lucas is also becoming a publisher for for the Doubleday Publishing Group. Is it Knopf? Yeah. So she's joining next year. Nice. That's so, awesome. Like, these are major women in publishing. And this is good because I think finally more books, more diversified books will be put on the map instead of just yeah, being this, on the side. So I'm really Yeah, this is definitely a, a big move. Big, big move for Black women. Um, also, Phoebe Robinson. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's like a ask. She's an actress and a comedian. She also has a really popular podcast, and she mm-hmm. actually ha- she will have her own imprint. It's called Tiny Reparations Books with Dutton um, and Plumes. I'm really excited to see what type of books that she'll be releasing. Yeah, that's gonna be awesome. So the biggest news that's out right now is that. Penguin Random House is buying Shiman and Schuster, which are two of the biggest book publishers in the world. Yeah. And um, Viacom CBS agreed to sell the company and it will be like a mega publisher. So, so Viacom CBS is selling Shiman and Schuster to Penguin Random House for about $2 billion. So it's That's... going to create a big, big mega publisher. Yeah, that's, um, I've seen and heard just um, mixed feelings about that. Um, I'm just curious to see how this goes because I know with them um, combining these two, it does limit a lot for um, 
I want to say diversity in a sense of like the authors and the books they put out and stuff. So right, so it'll be it'll be more competitive. But yeah, um, they do have they do mm-hmm. have a black woman publisher, mm-hmm. um, in charge of Simon and Schuster. So that may make a difference. I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm hoping uh, later on today I'll be able to read the article and just kind of see, you know, what this is all about. Yeah. So that's it with the news. Awesome. So we just had the election and it was a big deal. It actually went longer than I've ever seen the election go. So what were your thoughts about this whole situation? To be honest, I didn't have any hope. I was depressed. I was just, I'm like, I can't. And then the next day I saw that Biden had won a lot of swing sticks and I was like mm-hmm. what and they yeah. were just waiting on Arizona and I'm sorry Nevada and and Georgia mm-hmm. and those results came later like later on in, in the in the month mm-hmm. I'm I just I'm just so relieved that I we don't have to you know be in a fascist government anymore I'm so relieved that he can undo a lot of the damages that this administration has has done mm-hmm. um I'm not saying that it's a it's going to be like a wonderful world, like everything's going to go back to normal. But I at least want to say, with all the diversity in the in the cabinet, you know, that's that's already been announced. I'm really hoping for some progressive policies that that will help everyone. And again, black women save the day as usual. You know, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, I mean. Personal, Joe Biden wouldn't be my first choice, but right. with what we had to work with, he was the only choice. Um, four more years of the current administration, I don't know if any of us would survive that. That's just my personal no. thought. So, And a, a cool thing that we got out of that was a Black woman VP. So Right. Come on. First so time I'm, in history. Yeah. I'm really, really excited yeah to so. see what policies they have and how they represent how they'll represent the world now yeah for sure absolutely i feel like god was just giving us a second chance it's like oh my goodness please yeah do <laughs> over was, was praying 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 hard calling on everybody jesus my mama was like please help us. <laughs> that's too funny so what you've been reading lately so i i just finished a few books I'm just going to mm-hmm. open up my good read. So I just finished Black Sun by Rebecca Ronehouse. How was I'm actually, that? I'm back. I'm, I'm actually reading this book in a To Be Weird book club. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I gave it a 3.75 to about a 4. Okay. Um, it's an interesting book. It's um, based on pre-Columbian um, societies like the Mike the Mayans and the Incas and other people, other indigenous people living in that era. And it's a lot of like a, the magic system isn't really that complicated, but it's mm. something that I can understand. I guess my only great with the book is that it's a lot of like world building and a lot of character development and exposition, but the plot is there, but it's not like a fast moving plot to me. Some mm. other people said it was there, but I didn't really see it. But mm. either way, when I got towards the end of the book, I was like, yes, I'm going to give this a four. Okay. Because um, it, it, it ended strong. Um, uh, there's some really beautiful writing um, in the book. So I really like that. Um, another book I finished was 
Girl Serpent Thorn mm-hmm. by Melissa Brostadorst. And this is basically like a um like one of those fairy tale YA books. It's about a princess who is cursed by a um by evil spirit. And basically she's just coming into her own and figure out who she is. And then her her family is in danger. So she goes and you know, she's she's trying to figure out how to help her family. She ends up um meeting a dean, I think that's how you pronounce it, which is basically like a spirit that's prevalent in a lot of Persian and um Islamic uh like mythologies. So she works with the den to kind of get to get her family back together and everything. Very interesting. And the main protagonist is bisexual. So there's representation oh. there. So it was really interesting. And I read another book called Bront Mistress, which this was really good. And it had sex and everything it was great. So basically this is a book about um an older mistress named Lydia she was married this is like in the like in the 1800s um she had four kids but they really wasn't you know connecting with her she lost a child then her husband which they when they first got married they were madly in love all of a sudden he just stopped loving her and was just you know very unkind and neglectful to her Mm -hmm. so you know the Bronx are really famous you know Charlotte Bront wrote um, Jane Eyre and her sister wrote some other books. So they had a younger brother who was around 25, 26. He was a poet and he met Lydia and Mm -hmm. um, he, she decided to, to hire him as a tutor for her son. And they ended up becoming lovers instead. And now she's like 40 something. And this young man is like 25, 26 years old. So it just, it, um, the book talks about how the affair started, how it ended um, what were the ramifications of it? Um, it was really good. I loved the writing. Um, I really see that just being a woman in any decade is just, I'm, I'm thanking God that right now we have a lot of rights and privileges mm-hmm. um, due to, um, pe- you know, due to feminism, Black feminism, womanism, and everything like that. People really fighting for our rights. Mm-hmm. But from this book, basically all, all the women were allowed to do even if they were you know of upper class origin it was basically just they were they were they were kind of educated but they were basically educated just to I guess um to house parties for their husbands if they had any businesses and oh, wow. they just sat around and they had kids and if they looked they were looked upon more strongly or with more not really more approval if they had sons so this was a really interesting book I really liked it and then you know of course I read The Salt Eaters by Tony K. Bamar. We already talked mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. I also read A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney, which was which is like a really, a really interesting Alice in Wonderland type story with a black girl protagonist. Really cute, very interesting. And then the last book I'll mention is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Really good um, memoir about um growing up queer. And then coming up to himself. So I have some pretty good books. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I'm always reading. So, um, sheesh, where do I start? Um, I completed um, I completed The Good Lord Bird by oh, yeah, James McBride. Yeah, and I, I just found out after I read it that it's a TV show on HBO. Yes. And, and I've heard that it's really, really good. It's actually on Showtime. 
Okay, Showtime. Yeah. So, I mean, um, the book was amazing. I read some of the reviews and people had mixed feelings about it, but I thought it was awesome. Um, I read that. Um, I read a book called um, Crosshairs by Catherine Hernandez. And that book comes out, I believe, December 20th, I believe. And um, let's see, completed a memoir. This was um, one of my highly um, anticipated releases for this year. It's called The Dragons, the Giant, and the Women by, wait, how do you say her, her first name? Way too more? That sounds pretty accurate to me. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, and then I finished, and it was a super uh, quick read, but it's um, a collection of poems called Felon. Okay. Those are my most um, recent complete reads. I'm now currently reading Girl, Girl, Girl by Kenya Hunt. Mm -hmm. And I'm only about mm, 30 or so pages in, and it's really, really good. So. It's okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that out when it comes out. It looks really yeah. good. So it's really good. Are there any like um shows or podcasts you're really enjoying lately? Yes. So The Crown came out last about one or two weeks ago. And I I love if if you know anything about me, you should know. I love anything British. So I love the British monarchy. I love mm -hmm. London's like I love the architecture. I love the literature, but I, the most, I, the most, the, the most important things I love are the men with the gorgeous British accents, and I love <laughs> um, BBC shows or just anything like any type of British period piece shows. I love. So um, the Crown is a show that's based on the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, mm -hmm. and this this is it's in its fourth season. And this season is basically talking about how Diana and um, and Charles, how they meet and they get married and everything. It's it's pretty messy. I'll say yeah. that. I'm not going to give anything away, but it's it's interesting. And mm -hmm. sometimes the colonialism really does make me very, I don't know, just, I'm just kind of, wow. Mm -hmm. They really just were just expanding all over the place. Like it's something else. Wow. But that's but um I use it I kind of use the show as like a a learning tool I go I usually go to Wikipedia I'll read books about what happened during that time oh, but nice. the acting is superb um I also love Adventure Time <laughs> which is like <laughs> our Cartoon Network um like a um cartoon it's really cute uh it has a lot of great moral stuff for kids I just watch it because it's just it's just really funny um, yeah my my daughter and I are big fans of that show. I love Adventure Time. Mm -hmm. For podcasts, I subscribe to over 900 of them. Wow. <laughs> which is, it's, which a is just, it's a lot. But I just have a lot of different um, interests that I'm in, that, um, that I'm interested in. I have a lot of different topics that I'm interested in. Okay. So my, my, my very, very favorite um, podcast is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. That is my number one favorite podcast. Because oh, wow. they, they basically, they go through all, all the books and they break it down chapter by chapter and then they match it up with a spiritual or a sacred practice. And oh. they bring out so many interesting aspects about the books that, that you really, really think of. So I like that one. I also love The Read with Crystal and Kit Fury, which is more of like a comedy, um, pop culture, gossip um, podcast. Really, really funny. 
love them to death. I also love, um, I think it's called Black Girls in Therapy. Mm-hmm. Love them. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite ones as well. And uh, I listen to a lot of like like Bible um, podcasts or like the Bible Project mm-hmm. and other um, podcasts like that. So those are my favorites right now. I'm probably missing some others. I can't think of them right now. <laughs> but those are my main ones that I really, really like to listen to. Nice. Yeah, so for me, I've been binge listening and watching. So on Netflix, I've been... I've watched the uh, Queen's Gambit. I don't know if you've heard of that one. I have, and I started watching it. It was good, but I didn't finish it. I heard it, well, I didn't hear it, but from what I've been watching, it's very, very good. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And it's a miniseries based on Walter Tavis's 1983 novel of the same name. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I raved about this um, show, and I came across a post, I believe, a few days ago and they talked about how, you know, there was lack of diversity. And I'm in my head, I'm like, you know, you're absolutely right. There was like one black character. I didn't read the book, so I don't know who, um, you know, represents the black character or if there's a black character in the book. But I totally mm-hmm. understood where they were coming from. I say give the show a try. I enjoyed it because, I mean, who's ever looked at chess the way, you know, the book and this um, miniseries has giving us chess you know what I mean so I thought right I thought that was really interesting and um on Hulu I watched a movie called Run it's about a mother who raised her daughter in total isolation controlling every Uh-oh. move that she makes the, the movie is crazy it's predictable but crazy mm. and it's about I don't know if you ever heard about um Gypsy Gypsy Rose Blanchard she sounds really familiar. Okay, if you look her up, this movie gave me that kind of vibes. Is that the little girl that pretended that she was sick and she was She was pretending her mom was making her sick by poisoning her and giving her medications to make her oh, sick. Yes. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, I did hear about her. Yeah, so I definitely recommend that one. And lastly, on HBO Max, I watched um, Between the World and Me, which was awesome. Yeah, I thought that that was going to be a not kind of like a downer mm-hmm. because it's just the the subject is so heavy. I may check it out this weekend, but if you said it was awesome, I'll check it out for yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, it's based off of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. So, yeah, I, I really, right. really enjoyed it. It was, it was awesome. I loved it. Okay, I'll check it out. And lastly, we have our self-care tip of the week. What do you have for us, Jenna? Oh, I don't have that. Do you what? Have <laughs> what have you done lately that kind of like has helped you? Um, what have I done? Um, oh, okay. So I don't know if this is T- TMI, but I think a big um, self-care tip for me is just being luxurious with um, everyday things. Did I mention that before? No. So just being luxurious with, with like very different with, with like ordinary things. So for example, when I take a shower, I use Dr. Bronner's soap. Mm-hmm. I mean, the soap is drying, but it has the most amazing aromatherapy smell. Mm-hmm. So it calms me down as soon as I take the shower. Oh, that's cool. And then I usually use some type of body butter that has a nice calm scent. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, put it on my body. I 
I, you know, I feel great, I feel soft. Like I make it like a spa experience. Mm. Then I have my whole facial regimen that I do. Um, I put on my serum and, you know, my, my moisturizer and my, uh, my, not my foundation. I do wear makeup sometimes, mm-hmm. but my, uh, my sunscreen mm-hmm. and it's just, just, that's just the care that I'm giving to myself mm-hmm. or will make me feel better and also look better. Oh, nice. You know, it sets the tone for my day. So really have to make things more special than it needs to be because this year has been really, really rough. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. Um, I'm really bad with um, self-care in the sense of treating myself and putting me mm-hmm. mentally and physically in a better place. So I decided mm-hmm. a few months back that I would create a self-care jar. And in this jar, oh. I have these like tons of pieces of paper that has different things so I can treat myself because before I was doing it more of a, you know, after the work week and I'm just stressed out, let me just treat myself. This is more of a, almost a daily thing for me. So in this jar, you know, I randomly blindly um, select an item where it's like um, treating myself to a movie on Netflix or a tree, a sweet tree or um playing a game or something that didn't require me to be a mom or a worker or a sister, just something that pertains just to me and my care. Right. So yeah, that's been my go-to lately. So yeah, super easy to make. You can get a mason jar, um, just uh, sticky, sticky notes and just write some random things that you enjoy or things that give you, um, peace and serenity and just write that down and just use that as a tool to help you get through those rough times sounds good so join us on our next episode as we discuss black women and spirituality with our next three books the first book will be the lemonade reader which was edited by dr Kenitra d brooks and we're also reading beyonce information remixing black feminism by Okasimi, Natasha Tinsley, and we're also reading the Parable of the Sour series by Octavia Butler. We chose these books because they all have the underlying current of, of spirituality and different aspects and just how and how Black women kind of embrace them to go throughout their lives. So I'm really, really excited to talk about these books. And plus, I'm a big big Beyonce fan I'm probably the biggest one I'm Stan so I'm really excited to read anything about her yeah I'm really excited about these next three books thank you for tuning in today we hope we have inspired you and help you find tools to make your life just a little bit easier to continue this conversation you can stay in touch with us on Instagram at Ebony Musings and if you haven't done so already please leave us a review. It would really help our show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.